If you are like me, then any time you read about prayer or hear about prayer, you see room for improvement in your life. Prayer is probably one of the most difficult disciplines in the Christian life. We always, always have room for growth and improvement in this aspect of Christian living. And my guess is that will be the case until the day the Lord Jesus takes us to be with Him. Our text this morning is about prayer. If you are not already there, please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our way through this first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Last Lord's Day, we began to consider Paul's prayer for the Philippians. So please follow along as I read it again in verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense, Till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This brief prayer of Paul's, like his other prayers in the New Testament, is a prayer for spiritual growth. That's what he prayed for his friends. Basically, you could say, Paul prayed for them to grow spiritually. And Paul knew exactly what he prayed for the Philippians. He mentions five specifics in these verses. Love, excellence, integrity, fruit, and glory. Those were the five aspects of Paul's prayer for his friends. And these are sequential. That is, they build on each other. Spiritual growth or development starts with an abounding love for God and others that is coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. We looked at that last Lord's Day. That in turn results in living life based on certain priorities of excellence. When we live that way, we will live a life of personal and relational integrity that will result in fruit from our lives, and fruit gives glory to God. That's the way Paul's prayer for spiritual development unfolds. Last week, we looked at the foundational element of love. In verse 9, Paul says, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Paul started here. Paul began at this point because Paul knew that the starting point for spiritual growth and development is the right internal motivation. It all starts with an abounding, overflowing love for God, for Jesus Christ, and for others that is coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 10 gives us another purpose clause. Notice how verse 10 begins. He says, So that you may approve the things that are excellent. This is the next phase or the next step or the the next stage of spiritual development. 
It all starts with loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do that, then we will live our lives based on certain priorities of excellence. The word approve here at the beginning of verse 10 is the Greek word dokimadzo, and elsewhere this word is translated test. But it means to test in the positive sense of that term. In other words, it's a positive word, not a negative one. It means to test to approve, or test to demonstrate approval. So it's translated that way here when Paul says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. The word excellent here in this verse is not a word that means what is right as opposed to what is wrong. That is not what Paul is praying for here because most people can already do that. Most people can make a judgment call between what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Most people know the difference even though not all people are willing to do what is right. Most people know what is right and what is wrong. But this word carries the idea of the difference between what is good and what is best. The issue is excellence. The issue is priority. Sadly enough, many Christians don't live their lives based on this kind of standard. Most react to life instead of planning life. Many Christians make choices based on emotion or their mood, whatever they feel like. It's, it's reaction rather than planning. For example, many Christians loosely thinking, think about coming to church on Sunday morning or Sunday night. If something else doesn't come up, like a good game or, a, or another fun activity, then they, they might choose to be here. They will be at church if they feel like it. And frankly, many don't even get as far as considering coming to church because they already know that other things take precedent. Other things are more important. Other things are a greater priority. When people live life that way, they demonstrate the fact that they are living life based on mood, emotion, reaction, or feelings. It's not living life based on a well-thought-out plan that has been determined by examining what is best and therefore makes those things priorities. But this is what Paul was praying for in the lives of his friends. He was praying that the Philippians would have such a strong love for God and such a strong love for people that they would order the priorities of their lives around things that are excellent, not things that are inferior. So many Christians, too many Christians, fill their lives with things that are inferior to things that excel. Beloved, what this comes down to in large measure is how you and I spend our time. Do we plan the use of our time for what is best, or do we just react to life and spend our time on what is inferior? Dr. Dwight Pentecost has written this, and I quote, The apostle recognizes that one may focus his interest, his attention, and his affection on things of secondary importance and inferior worth. Paul wants them to have the discernment to focus their attention, give their strength and effort, not to secondary, but to primary things. 
To every person alike, God grants a gift of 24 hours in any one day, not a moment more or less. What a person accomplishes in that 24-hour period is determined by the discipline that person exercises in the use of time. One will exercise discipline and accomplish much. Another will be undisciplined and accomplish little. One is approving things that excel, and the other is involved in things of lesser worth. That may apply to every realm of life. A person whose life is disciplined by the Spirit of God and the Word of God does not give himself or herself to something of secondary importance, recognizing that he or she does not have time for both the good and the best. This person approves the things that are superior. This discipline that enables someone to approve the superior things comes through saturation with the Word of God. It is the discipline of the Spirit of God exercised in a person's life. Lest these Philippians, whom Paul loves, spend their time running in circles, he prays that they might learn this discipline in order to approve things of superior worth." That's exactly what Paul is praying about here in verse 10. But notice that he doesn't start his prayer at this point. He starts inside with our motivation because motivation determines priorities. So he starts with an abounding love, which is the inner motivation to make choices of excellence. You see, beloved, the bottom line is this. If you stop to think about it, the bottom line is this. All of us really do make time for what's important to us. We do. If we consider something extremely important, we find a way to make time for it. We live in a complex world. We live in a world with a multitude of choices. We can choose what we eat, what we wear, what we do for entertainment, what we do for recreation, where we go to school, where we live, what kind of car we drive. And I'm afraid we have come to view our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ the same way. It's simply one item on our long list of choices. We can go to church on Sunday morning to worship and learn, or or we can go biking, or we can go to brunch, or we can play golf. However, whatever we, you know, whatever our mood is. We could be at church on Sunday nights to study the Word of God, or, or we could stay home and watch TV or do something else that's fun. And we could read our Bibles during the week and pray, or, or we could pack our schedules so tightly with other things, not necessarily bad things, but pack our schedules so tightly that we will stop to think about the Lord if we have time. You see, my fear is that our Christianity has become a thing of convenience. We develop and nurture our relationship to the Lord if we have time. And we fit the things of the Lord into our busy schedules if it's not too inconvenient. As someone has said, we have learned to love the Lord Jesus selectively. We love the Lord Jesus if it doesn't cost us too much. We we love the Lord Jesus if it's not too demanding. We love the Lord Jesus if it fits with all our other choices in life. It's a buffet. Life's a buffet. You just, it's just there and you pick and choose and that's the way it is with the Lord. I know Christians who will take a great deal of time to do many things that are not bad, but, but they don't have time to serve the Lord. 
You see, we claim to love the Lord. But for many Christians, their claim just doesn't square or mesh with the choices they make in life. It's amazing to me how disciplined some people can be in certain areas of their lives. And yet so undisciplined in their thinking. And so undisciplined in their walk with God. Some people are so disciplined in things that are virtually meaningless. Not evil. Virtually meaningless. And they are so lax in what really counts in life. Some people are very exact in their athletic training, their diets, their schoolwork, their business, their job. And those are good things. Nothing wrong with them. But they don't bother to prioritize the thing that counts most in life. Paul understood that. That's why he prayed this specific prayer request in verse 10 for his friends. I'm praying that you will approve the things that are excellent, the things that excel, the things that matter most in life. Don't settle for what is good. Settle only for what is best. Let me show you this further over in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn to the right past Colossians 1st and 2nd Thessalonians 1st and 2nd Timothy. 2nd Timothy chapter 2. 2nd <clears throat> Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. Paul says, "No one engaged in warfare 2 Timothy 2:4. No one engaged in warfare, and that's us, beloved. We're in a battle. We're we're in a war." We're in a war for our own lives, our own souls. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now when Paul says that, please understand that he's not only referring to abstaining from that which is immoral. That's a given. That's obvious. He is also saying that if we want to maximize our effectiveness as a soldier, then we must make some basic choices about how we spend our time. You you can't maximize your ministry if you're involved in every sport in town, every hobby, every kind of class, every kind of activity. You can't maximize your ministry if you're always tied down to a host of projects around the house that take precedent over everything else in your life. If you're going to be an effective soldier, then you're going to have to learn to discipline your life around certain priorities. You and I have to make choices. And that is exactly what Paul is praying about in Philippians 1.10. Now let's go back to our text there in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> so as Paul prayed for his friends, he started with love, because if we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we won't move on to this second stage of growth where we approve things that are excellent. This part of the prayer, this part of Paul's prayer here in Philippians 1, can be summed up with his own words in Romans 12, 2, where he says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is good. In English terminology, we could say that the first part of Paul's prayer focuses on the heart, that is, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and this part of the prayer focuses on the mind, thinking about what is excellent, or things that... Excel. But notice Paul doesn't stop there. He could have 
concluded his prayer at that point, but he continues. Verse 10, he says, that you may approve the things that are excellent, so that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The first word in this last phrase, the word sincere, means without flaw, without a crack, or genuine. This is a a unique word in the New Testament. It's only used one other time in all the New Testament. Some scholars suggest that it should be translated, tested by sunlight. They say that the origin of this word is in the pottery world, where you take a piece of pottery and you hold it up to the sunlight so that you can see if there are any cracks, any flaws in the pottery. If that is the root meaning of this word, then the thought is that a sincere Christian should not be afraid to stand in the light. We have nothing to hide if we're not hypocritical, if we're not living double lives. Romans 12.9 says, Love without hypocrisy. That says it simply enough. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't cover things up in your life to live a double life. Deal with them before God. A man once told Charles Spurgeon that he wanted to write his biography in a book. And he said it in such a way, not in a positive way, like, you know, I'm going to write all about you. I'm going to write your life in a book so everyone can read it. Spurgeon told him that he could write his life in the clouds if he wanted to because he had nothing to hide. That's the way we all ought to be, beloved. Transparent and open, sincere, pure before God, nothing to hide. The test of our lives is not what people approve of or what society approves of. It's what the Word of God approves of. Another possible meaning behind this unique word, sincere, is the idea, and some scholars suggest this is the the derivation of the origin of this word, uh, whirling in a sieve until all chaff is removed. If that's the root meaning of this word, then the thought is that our lives ought to be sifted by the Word of God and the Spirit of God until there's no chaff in our lives. So the word sincere is a good translation of this Greek word because it refers to character that can pass the test. Our English word sincere comes from a Latin word that means unadulterated, pure, unmixed. By the way, the focus of this word is Godward. I mention that because of the next word. There's a slight contrast. This, the focus of this word is Godward. It's a, it is a vertical word, a vertically oriented word. It emphasizes our relationship with God. This is what we are to be when no one is looking except God. This is personal integrity. You see, it's easy for us to look at people's lives from a distance and think everything is in place because we only see the outside. But time often reveals the truth of a person's character. For example, sometimes people who seem to be okay on the outside don't really have the kind of influence you would think they would have on people who are around them, people they work with, etc., and it betrays that something is missing. Paul didn't want this kind of thing to be true in the lives of these people he loved so deeply, so he prayed for them. As I read through this time and time again in preparation for the message, I began to ask myself a question, namely this. Why didn't Paul just tell them to be sincere and genuine? Why pray about it when you can address it? And I think one reason may have been because it doesn't come naturally for us 
to see flaws in our own lives, right? We are all biased for ourselves. We all have blind spots, every one of us in this room. We can all see the shortcomings in other people's lives, but we are so slow to see them in our own lives. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful. We deceive ourselves into passing over our own flaws, or if we admit they are there, we excuse them, we justify them, we rationalize around them. So rather than just address it directly, Paul prayed. Paul prayed that God would get through to his friends concerning areas of their lives that needed to be scrutinized by the penetrating light of the sun and shown deficient. He prayed for them to be sincere. Then the second word in this phrase is the word that's translated without offense. And this word has a manward focus. This word, as I said, the previous word is vertical in its focus. This word is horizontal in its focus. This refers to relational integrity. Our lives are to be sincere in the Godward aspect and without offense in the manward aspect. 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. That covers everyone. Give no offense. Don't let your actions, your attitudes be offensive to other people. Look at Paul's personal personal statement on this back in 2 Corinthians 6. Turn to the left back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And notice what he says here. Second Corinthians six three, he says this, and and realize Paul's not bragging when he makes this comment. He's just stating the facts. He says we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. We give no offense in anything so that our ministry may not be blamed. Oh, how I wish God's people would realize that what they do is a direct reflection on the ministry of Christ. Beloved, you can't segment your life. Your attitudes, your actions, your words at the PTA meeting at school or in City League basketball game or on the job or any other kind of function you are involved in. Your attitudes, your actions, and your words are directly related to the name of Christ. If people know you're a Christian, if people know you claim to be a Christian, if people know you go to church, then your life, your words, your actions are a direct, direct impact on the ministry of Christ. You cannot segment your life into spiritual and non-spiritual. And for that reason, God wants us to be without offense in our relationships before people. It is so discouraging when I have people say to me, and sadly this is not uncommon, Pastor, you wouldn't believe how so-and-so talks at work. You wouldn't believe how the kind of language he uses, you know, out in the uh, in athletic competition. Or you ought to see how so-and-so acts when he's not at church. Beloved, don't, don't live your life that way. Or at least if you do, do the rest of us a favor and don't claim to be a Christian. And please don't tell people you are a Christian who goes to Grace Bible Church. 
Don't give the Lord Jesus and us that kind of reputation. It's hard to overcome. It's really hard to overcome in society. And Paul understood that. Paul knew that. That's why he says here, we give no offense in anything so that the ministry is not blamed. Paul knew how this works. He knew, who knew, that, he knew this. So he prayed that the attitudes and actions of the Philippians might pass the scrutiny of the sunlight of God's examination and that they might live so that people who imitated their conduct would not be led into sin. This kind of thinking consumed the mind of Paul. This was really, really important to him. Look at what he said in Acts 24. Keep going to the left just prior to the book of 1 Corinthians, prior to Romans, is Acts Acts chapter 24. This is Paul's defense before Felix. This probably took place at Caesarea by the sea where Paul was kept for a couple years as he continued to plead his case before various Roman officials before he finally appealed to Caesar and was taken off to Rome. But Paul sat in prison at Caesarea by the sea, and he had these trials. And this one is his his, uh, defense before Felix. And we pick it up in verse 14 of Acts 24. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, now watch the practical implication in Paul's thinking. This being so, since I know there's going to be a resurrection someday, and I know that we're going to stand before the Lord someday, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. That's exactly what Paul was praying for the Philippians in chapter 1. This is the way he lived his life, and this is what he prayed for his friends. Now let's go back to our text there in Philippians chapter 1. So Paul prayed for them, his his dear friends in Philippi. He prayed, verse 10, that that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The word that sums up these two character traits, the God word and the man word, the word that sums up these two traits is the word integrity. Integrity comes from the math term integer. An integer, if you remember from your math days, is a whole number. So integrity literally means wholeness. No cracks, no flaws, no inconsistencies, nothing lacking, genuine, whole, complete. As one man put it, integrity is when every part of your life touches every other part of your life and there's nothing in your life that's unrelated to what you believe or what you affirm or what you say your creed is. That's integrity. And that's what Paul prayed for his friends. 
He prayed for the Philippians to have an increasing love for God and one another that is coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment which would lead them to approve things that are excellent so that they would set the right priorities in life, so that they would develop in their character, so that their character would be sincere and without offense. But he still isn't finished. That leads to the next part of his prayer, verse 11. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The first part of verse 11 is a prayer for good works or fruit. This is not mentioned first. Notice that. This is not mentioned first because Paul realized that doing comes from being. That is, what we are on the inside is what flows out of us. It flows out in our actions. And that's why the Bible refers to this as fruit. It is a product of something. Namely, a thriving relationship with Christ. The phrase, the fruits of righteousness, is an Old Testament expression that has to do with fulfilling all the requirements of righteousness. So Paul prayed that his friends would bear fruit. Now, if you're like me, then you want some specifics. That sounds pretty general. What are we talking about? What is fruit in our lives? What is it? Galatians 5, and 23 teaches that fruit is Christ-like character and attitudes. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. God considers our attitudes fruit. Hebrews 13, 15 teaches that fruit is a life of thankfulness, a life of praise. So that means if we are unthankful, if we're negative and complaining, then we don't have this kind of fruit. Romans 1.13 teaches that fruit is ministry to other believers. This would include encouraging other believers, building them up, edifying them, teaching them, discipling them, praying for them. Romans 6.22 teaches that fruit is righteous living. True godliness, holy living is fruit. Romans 15.23 and Philippians 4.17 teach that fruit is giving financially to support the Lord's work. That's fruit. John 4 teaches that fruit is being instrumental in bringing others to faith in Jesus Christ, either by sowing or reaping. These are the kinds of things that are considered fruit by the Scripture. How is this kind of fruit produced? Let me tell you how it's not produced. You can't just crank it out. You can't just say, oh, this is fruit, so I'll just crank it out. No, Jesus made it clear how this kind of fruit is produced. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, for one other passage we're going to look at before we conclude in Philippians 1. John, chapter 15. This issue is so important that on Jesus' final night, as he was with his disciples somewhere in Jerusalem, in an upper room with them celebrating Passover, He told them what their relationship with him could be likened to or how to compare it. John 15, verse 4, he said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Notice that. We can't crank out fruit. We can't do this on on our own. We can't just say, I'm going to do this if it kills me. No, a branch cannot bear fruit on its own. Just as a branch cannot, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Please notice that, beloved. Jesus produces the fruit. We can't produce it on our own. He produces it through us. It is our responsibility to cultivate the intimacy of the relationship with Christ, and it is His responsibility to produce the fruit through us. That's what Paul was praying in Philippians 1. Now let's go back to our text there as we wrap it up with that 11th verse. Back to Philippians chapter 1. So Paul prays in verse 11, the next step or the next uh, phase of growth that he prayed for regarding the Philippians' lives, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. And then this final phrase, to the glory and praise of God. This is the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer. This, This prayer has been ascending starts with the foundation of love, moves on to approving things that are excellent, being sincere without offense till the day of Christ, fruit being produced through us, and ultimately it builds to this crescendo, to the glory and praise of God. An abounding love for God and others is coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment that leads to a life that approves things that are excellent so that we set the right priorities in life, so that we will develop in our character, so our character will be sincere and without offense as we bear much fruit in our lives. And all of this together brings maximum glory to God who redeemed us to this very end and purpose. That was Paul's prayer. There you have it. And beloved, this should be our prayer for one another, our prayer for our own lives. This should be our focus. We should give ourselves wholly to these things. And as we do, we must realize that all the glory goes to God for the results. Listen to this quote. In one of his stories, the Lord Jesus described the tireless attention a gardener gives to his plants. But when the plant is full grown, the gardener has to confess ignorance on how the growth has taken place. His careful tending is not insignificant, nor is it optional for the untended plant will die. Yet something other than man makes it grow. It is the same with the fruits of righteousness. Our obedience, discipline, and hard graft are not insignificant or optional. On the contrary, they are the God-intended context of growth. But but something else energizes the growth till the fruit is ready for harvest. All is done through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That says it well. All is done through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the ultimate goal of it all. That's the goal of our lives, beloved, to to glorify our Father. In John 15.8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So I ask you this morning, honestly now, 
Do you long to see God glorified? Do you long to see God receive the glory He so richly deserves? If you do, if you say yes to that question, then pray this prayer for yourself. And pray this prayer for your Christian friends. Pray for an abounding love for God and others, coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment that leads to a life that approves things that are excellent so that we set right priorities in life, so we will develop in our character, so that our character will be sincere and without offense as we bear much fruit in our lives to bring maximum glory to God who redeemed us for this very purpose. Pray this way. It's okay. It's good to pray for one another's burdens. We should. But don't forget to pray this way also for your friends. Pray these kinds of things. And make these things the focus of your life. Let's bow together as we close this morning. And as we bow together in closing, I want to encourage you to take just a moment now to think of, I don't know, one or two, three or four people in your life, Christian friends, associates, and even now pray this kind of prayer for them. Pray that their love for God, their love for Jesus Christ would abound. Pray that their love would be a love coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. Pray that their lives would would develop and grow and move along to a life that approves things that are excellent so that they will set right priorities in life, best priorities. Pray for a development of character so that their character would be sincere and without offense, that they would bear much fruit in their lives to bring maximum glory to God. Pray this for your friends, for your family members, Pray this for yourself, for your own life. And if these things are proper to pray about, which they are, then certainly they are proper to focus on, to think about in our own lives what our responsibility is in relation to these things in our lives. And in closing this morning, I would say this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the first prayer that you ought to utter is not necessarily this prayer, though it's a great prayer. The first prayer you should pray is a prayer of humility, of humbleness, a prayer of repentance, asking God to forgive you of your sins, asking Jesus Christ to come into your life and cleanse you to take control of your life and to make you the man or the woman He wants you to be. That's the first prayer any of us ought to pray. It's the starting point. And from there, we can pray these other kinds of things for one another and for ourselves. Father, as we began this message, we did so by acknowledging that prayer is an area of life that most of us struggle with, if we're honest. It's something that's always a challenge to us and probably will be so until the day you take us home. And so we thank you for regular instruction in your word, like 
we have seen this morning in Philippians 1. Thank you for examples of the, the proper way to pray, the, the best kinds of things to pray about for others. We need this, this kind of reminder. We need this kind of exhortation. We need this, uh, this kind of example to keep us focused on praying this way. And so we pray these things for each other. We pray for an abounding love for you, Father, and for your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, an abounding love for people that is coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. We pray that we would develop and grow in life to lead a life that approves things that are excellent so that we set the right priorities in life. We pray that we will develop in our character so that our character will be sincere and without offense as we bear much fruit in our lives to bring maximum glory to you. You are certainly worthy of that glory. You are deserving of that glory. And I know I speak for many when I say we long for you to receive that glory. And so we pray these things for one another. We pray these things for ourselves. And in closing... We pray for anyone who has gathered with us here this morning who is not right with you, Father, who doesn't know your Son, Jesus Christ, or who knows your Son but has walked away. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do His work in that man's life or woman's life, young person, whoever it is, and draw that person into a right relationship with you so that he or she will walk closely with you And that these things, which are so important to you, as we see in your word, would be important to them. May these concepts, these truths be very precious to us and important to us as they are to you. We pray these things together. In the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.